I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly. And this week, we're diving into the green notebooks of Major General Mick Ryan from the Australian Defense Force and Steve Leonard, the creator of Dr. Man. In this episode, we're going to focus on the science fiction genre. Steve recently edited a book titled To Boldly Go, Leadership Strategy and Conflict in the 21st Century and Beyond, and Major General Ryan wrote the foreword for it. It's a volume of 35 essays from an international group of men and women to include Max Brooks, who wrote the book World War Z, and August Cole who wrote Ghost Fleet Burnin' and just so many great other authors. So I'm going to admit up front, I am not a science fiction fan. I enjoy the genre, and I recognize that it's something I need to read more of. There are so many benefits from reading these types of books, and one of the best endorsements for sci-fi comes from a warfighter. It comes from General Martin Dempsey, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he wrote that by provoking us to free our minds of constraints and convention, Worthy science fiction allows us to create a mental laboratory of sorts. In this place, we can consider new problems we might soon face or contemplate novel ways to address old problems. It sparks the imagination, engenders flexible thinking, and invites us to explore challenges and opportunities we might otherwise overlook. So hopefully this episode nudges you to read more science fiction. I know it did for me. (laughs) Please welcome to the show Major General Mick Ryan and Steve Leonard. Hey, Joe, it's great to be here. Hey, Joe, thanks for having us. I'm glad that we were able to make this work out. You know, we're in three different time zones right now. We have Kansas, East Coast, and uh, all the way across a couple ponds to Australia. So thanks for making time and and let's sync this thing up. Uh, Real quick, before we dive into a book that I'm really excited to talk about, your latest book, could you just both give a little bit about your background for our listeners? And we'll start with uh, Major General Ryan. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, Mick Ryan, uh, Australian Army, just closing out 35 years as a soldier. Even after all that time, I still love it and um, have served in 
a lot of the same place you guys, Iraq, Afghanistan, as well as East Timor and the Pentagon. So um, for me, uh, I love science fiction both personally but as a, a professional framework to nurture creativity in our people and to think about different futures for our institutions that other planning mechanisms can't do. I'm Steve Leonard, former Army colonel, Army strategist, uh, longtime science fiction fan like General Ryan. I can trace mine back to childhood, have always been a huge fan of the genre and looked at it as a way that we could form a common lens that we could uh, explore different topics through by using something that everyone kind of understood, whether it was Star Wars or Star Trek or Babylon 5 or whatever that uh, people can learn through that medium. And uh, I think uh, this is a good example. Again, I'm really excited about this, especially with talking to both of you. You know, as I look back on the history of From the Green Notebook, both of you were integral into making this thing what it is today. I remember when I first got started, Steve, you were running Doctrine Man. Nobody knew who you were. And every time I would publish a new post, I would send it to you. If you shared it, people would read it. If you didn't, uh, maybe two people would read it, like me and my mom. And so I'd always get excited. And it really got the momentum behind from the Green Notebook and Major General Ryan. I was looking back on the blog the other day, and I realized that the very first interview I ever did was with you in 2014. And it was on leaders using social media, because you were kind of the first senior leader on there. And, and I would say that ever since then, and I've said it in a couple different interviews, is it how you have approached social media, in my opinion, is the gold standard for senior leaders. You've done an amazing job, sir, of promoting you know, professional military content that's produced outside of you know, PME across but not only you know, your military, but our military as well. So I, I appreciate both of you carving out time today to talk to me about this book, that's just coming out to boldly go. Yeah, thanks, Jake. Now I remember our interview well. Uh, I was just going into brigade command at that point, and uh, I also recall that very early in my brigade command, we we ran a big PME conference, and Doctrine Man came out as Steve Leonard at that conference <laughs> via international Zoom link, and I've had a lot to do with you two uh, over the years, and uh, hopefully we can continue that into the future. Starting off, sir, you wrote the Ford for the book to boldly go. So real quick, and then Steve, you can get into the mechanics of the book, sir. But in the Ford, you talk about your diet over years when it when it comes to reading. Can you explain a, a little bit about how you've approached reading as a as a military leader? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, readers are leaders. It's a it's an old cliche, but it's a it's a good one, and and, and it's true. It's the way you continue your education in a world that's changing quickly. Um, it's impossible to keep up with change just through being in the schoolhouse all your life. So you've got to supplement the formal with the informal and your professional reading uh, is the way to do that. And that needs you to look at not just military history, but politics, technology and a range of other topics. But science fiction for me typically has been, like I say in the forward right up front, comfort food. Um, and I also write a chapter in there about John Scalzi and, and how his writing kind of goes from the tactical to the grand strategic. For me, it's about not just having an enjoyable way of taking my mind away from the day-to-day. -day. It's a way of thinking about the future, the near future and the far future, 
but also saying there's more creative ways to think about our profession, about the day-to-day, about strategy. And for me, science fiction and, and what more recently has been called useful fiction by Peter Singer and August Cole has underpinned that. And we use it a lot here at the college. We have a Perry group that's been going for four years. It focuses on this, the use of science fiction in, in developing future military institutions. We've run conferences, writing competitions, these kind of things. It really is, I think, a fabulous way of honing creativity in our people. I wrote an article on it probably about five years ago. I was a bit worried when I wrote it because, you know, even as recent as five years ago, being a nerd who openly loved science fiction as a senior military officer was a bit unusual. So when I wrote that article, I was quite worried. But the reaction to it kind of opened the doors for other people to come out and say, hey, I'm a science fiction advocate. I love it. I'm a nerd. Why can't I be a nerd and an army officer or a military officer at the same time? I think about the same, just maybe right before that article came out, you know, that's when Ghost Fleet came out. And uh, I feel like in the military national security circles, like P.W. Singer and August Cole kind of kicked the door open for everybody and to show how science fiction can get people to start thinking about the future of conflict, start thinking of problems that, that we've yet to encounter, and even expose some stuff that, you know, like, uh, for example, I think one of the, the issues they exposed was our security of our supply chains, that Ghost Fleet actually ended up driving a review of how the military was getting our equipment. And so, so it was exposing something that we're living with today, which is a, a great transition to this book, To Boldly Go. So Steve, can you talk a little bit about the book and how you broke it down? Because you're the, you're the big editor on this one. First of all, I think you got to give credit where credit is due. And this was this was really Mick's idea. Mick and I, we we talked about this over dinner at West Point in 2018 at a uh, Modern War Institute dinner, shared the same table. And I think that night is all we talked about was this idea. And then it was just trying to find a way to make it come about. And this is fascinating. And one of the, my favorite stories about this experience is you know, the litmus test for a good idea when it comes to writing a book is when you approach a publisher with a half-baked idea and they do cheetah flips backwards because they want to pursue the idea. And that's exactly what happened. When we went to Casemate, it took one email and, hey, here's this idea that we're bouncing around. And they said, oh, yeah, we're in. We're all in. We'll even finish your proposal for you, whatever it takes. And we were off and running. We had a deal before we had writers. Amazing experience. I don't think that's how publishing is supposed to work, that it goes that easily. But I think that really is a testament to the value of mixed idea and what it meant to people writ large. It's just, it's it's hugely significant. Once we had that, we sat down and it was John Klug and I who bounced around the editorial ideas. John's also a huge science fiction nerd, even more so than me. And I think he could probably go toe to toe with Mick on this one. But we bounced around ideas and having written on a couple other books, contributed to a couple other books of similar formats, we had a lot of lessons learned from those those things. And so one of the things that we did was, one, we chose to define what we call the bins up front. So, okay, we want to talk about some very specific things, but let's define those up front before we talk to writers. So we can tell a writer, hey, here's six areas that we're going to talk in the book find one that suits you and write to that. What that does is it helps you on the back end in editing. So 
you're not stuck with a chapter that doesn't fit anywhere in the book and what do you do with it? So you give everybody an aim point of some point. And the other thing was one of the criticisms, and I'm not sure it's a fair criticism, it's an easy oversight that people make, but one of the criticisms of early efforts was that what you ended up with was you ended up with 30 writers, 29 of whom were white males, and one was an odd female who wandered into the room at some point and said, hey, I'd like to write. And so what we did was we set a goal that we were going to have half of our writers be women. And, you know, they're more than half the population. Why shouldn't they be statistically represented? And that's about as far as we went. Everything else just kind of fell out from there. But we targeted very specifically for that because I think what you do is you lift up voices that might not otherwise be heard. The only downside I'd say to that was it's been a long time since I dated. And I can tell you that to enter a conversation with a woman like, hey, are you nerdy and are you into sci-fi? And that's a really odd way to open up a conversation with somebody, especially if they're not willing to give up that information. But that's how you had to do it. I, I'd reach out to somebody and say, hey, look, uh, you know, we're thinking about throwing this together. Are you like into this kind of stuff? And I got a lot of no's and I got a few yeses, but we got enough yeses to be able to bring 15, 16, 17 women into the conversation. Finding guys that read science fiction is pretty easy. Unfortunately, I think it speaks a lot to our gender. So it makes sense about, you know, being nerdy. There are so many male nerds out there. It's hard to turn a rock over and not find one. So after that, I mean, we had a good team together and it was just a matter of pulling it all together. And you, know, you give everybody an aim point and they could take it from there. And the outcome is was wonderful. Well, I'll say that, you know, for me personally, I am not a huge science fiction fan. It's something that that I've kind of put myself out there to read. So one of the things that I appreciated about your book is you don't have to be super nerdy to get the lessons out of it because of the way in which the essays are written. So what were you talked about bins? Can you talk about some of the are the bins that that you broke the book down into? And we actually bounced these around. Obviously, we wanted to have a leadership focus to this. And we wanted to be able to broadly talk conflict. And we wanted to be able to talk strategy. And those were three themes that kind of worked their way through strategy strikes back and winning Westeros. But we also wanted to be able to talk about diversity in science fiction, because science fiction is absolutely rich in diversity. I mean, you can't have alien races without really mixing things up. And then science fiction does a wonderful job of that. Toxic leadership was another one that I thought was a good one because we have great examples of toxic leadership spread throughout the science fiction genre. And we can all come have characters that just kind of bounce to mind when we think about those kinds of things. So those kind of things just fell out really easily. But again, I thought it was really important to be able to do that. And you had hit a really good point. And that's that when we talked to the publisher about the book, our aim was to create something that was broadly appealing. So you don't have to be a science fiction junkie to get into this, because it'll still talk about topics that are very relevant. You know, if you can be a business leader or a strategist, or, and there's something in here for you. And when you look across the entirety of the book, there's a little something for everybody here. And on top of it, hey, it's a science fiction-based book. So if you're a science fiction enthusiast, then there's there's that too. And there's just something for everybody here, which increases the broad appeal and makes it a lot more marketable. And that was how, how we sold this to the publisher. It was, there's a little of something for everybody here. And so if, I don't care who you are, you can find something that's a value of interest that you can draw from here. 
it's a really great point that you make. You know, a lot of times when we think about the military, you know, we think military history, we think biographies, you know, we think nonfiction, but actually science fiction has a long history with the military, which, you know, General Ryan, you talk about in your opening essay in, in the book. How far does it go back where there's this like interplay in the military with science fiction and war? I think there's a there's a good alignment really between science fiction, industrial revolutions and military transformations. The first modern military science fiction uh, was a story called The Battle of Dorking, which was about a, an invasion of Britain in Britain in the 1870s. It was a blockbuster of its time. And about 400 of these kind of novels were written in the lead up to the First World War. And what it did was allowed people to come to grips with the rapid technological change that was the second industrial revolution, you know, the birth of cars, airplanes, radio, mass manufacturing, a whole lot of chemical and, and, and materials technologies. So, you know, it goes back to the 1870s. There's a great book by an American author called Frank Stockton called The Great War Syndicate, where Congress effectively contracts out war to England to 28 American industrialists. It's a fabulous book if you ever get a chance to read it. So there's, there's a history of science fiction trying to explain rapid technological change in society, not just for military people, but for society more broadly. The Third Industrial Revolution in the wake of the Second World War, themes of um, you know nuclear war, and uh, a lot of alien films and books, which really were a metaphor for reds under the beds or, or people who weren't like us. So I think this current surge in military science fiction, which I think is, is as Steve's highlighted, a far more diverse authorship these days up until, you know, the 80s, it was probably all old white blokes writing. It, it's not that anymore. And there's some wonderful stuff from a diversity of different authors. So I think this science fiction era tries to explain the rapid pace of change in society, but also the rapid pace of change in the military art and sciences that we're all living through, that many people are bewildered by, and it's a way of helping us deal with that bewildering change that's going on around us. And to that point, you mentioned the Battle of Dorking written by Chesney. And I, I remember in Lawrence, Sir Lawrence Friedman's book, The Future of War, he talked about that a little bit. And he said that you know these stories about the future made it possible to make points with more vigor than reasoned argument or dissections of an old campaign. And that's really, you know, going back to your book, To Boldly Go. I mean, that, that's allowing us to explore all different aspects of strategy, leadership, even the tactical fight through these essays on science fiction. Yeah, I mean, Peter Singer and August Cole, when they talk about their work, they describe it as blending up vegetables to put in your chocolate thick shake. It's making... I guess, complex ideas, uh, more accessible to a range of different audiences, including senior leaders and policymakers who have very busy lives. And if you can dissect complex ideas into something that's a bit more digestible for these busy people, I think there's a lot of benefit in that. Steve, any thoughts on that one? What came to mind right away was I'm about three quarters of the way through uh, Andy Weir's latest book. The Hail Mary Project. And I was talking to somebody about The Martian yesterday. And I was talking about reading The Hail Mary Project and how, how much I enjoyed it. And then that, you know, it, it was kind of reminiscent of The Martian as somebody said, well, you know, I didn't like The Martian. All it was about was problem solving. And I'm like, hello, 
And that's what we do. And, and I couldn't tell you how many times I used the Martian in class as an example of you're presented with a problem. What's the thought process that you go through to solve that problem? And OK, so because it's about problem solving, that made it fascinating to me. I can watch that movie every single day. And I read that book, you know, cover to cover. And it was, yeah, it was one problem after another. But it's brilliant in the sense that, okay, so you're on Mars. Here's a problem. How do you solve that problem? You move to the next problem. You solve that one. And you continually move on, which is what we do in life. But it's cast against, you know, a fictional backdrop, a life or death situation. But it's absolutely fascinating. And that's what I love about science fiction. It can present all those possibilities and then it sets it against some future scenario that may not seem plausible to some people, but it just makes it more interesting. And it's relatable, which I think makes it all the more fun. It's also about looking at contemporary problems. Um, if you have a look at Kim Stanley Robinson's work, it's about dealing with climate change. You look at Martha Wells's work, it's about biological augmentation. And I think Andy Weir's books, particularly Project How Mary, which is, I think, magnificent, it's about science and that science is just science, science isn't politics. And that's a great debate in some societies at the moment where, well, is, is that really the science or, you know, is that just ideology? So I think it's also great in helping people come to grips with contemporary issues in society as well. Hey, folks, it's Joe here, and I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you are looking for an education, this is a place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So, if you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu forward slash Army One and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now, back to the episode. I said earlier on, you know, like I'm not a diehard science fiction fan, but I enjoy reading it. I've read Neil Stevenson's books. You know, we just talked about Andy Weir's books. Ender's Game is a classic Starship Troopers, all of, of Singer and Cole's books. And what I've found is that, you know, through that storyline, you know, where there's emotions involved, there's, there's personal perspectives involved. Like I, I'm learning along the way and the story is causing it to stick with me a little bit more. Like I'm more likely to remember a leadership incident that happened in Ender's Game than I would be maybe something that happened during the Civil War or, you know, a World War I vignette. And so I, I think there's a lot of value in that because, you know, like when we're talking about solving problems in the real world, you know, being able to, to rely back on those mental models that we develop, hopefully the, the stuff that we read that's nonfiction sticks, but I find that there's something sticky about science fiction that's really beneficial for practitioners. I agree, mate. There's something about how the ideas stay with you. I mean, one of my favourites, and we make the students here in the Perry Group read it, is The Forever War by Jay Haldeman, who was a US Army combat engineer in the Vietnam War and wrote it about 
it was about the the veterans or the soldiers' journey and the veterans' journey, and the ideas in there about reintegration into society, about fighting people who are different to you and not understanding them, are timeless ideas. I mean, there were probably Roman centurions on Hadrian's Wall had exactly the same issues two thousand years ago. So it does allow us to relook at what are timeless issues. One, so we don't forget that they're issues. And secondly, so we can think through them a little bit differently and in a way that allows us to kind of take in the lessons better than we might through other mechanisms. Steve, do you want to jump in on that one? Or? So I'm soaking that in because that's exactly how I feel, is that you, know, you give somebody a genre that allows them to soak in lessons that might not otherwise sink in. You know, there's people who write contemporary military fiction. It's okay. It's not as attractive to me as science fiction. And I think there's something about the speculative nature of science fiction that you can explore those topics. And you just put it into a scenario that, okay, so it's future-based or it's, you know, off somewhere. It makes it more digestible, I think, and more relatable. Even though, you know, a contemporary piece of fiction is all right, I tend to, when I read contemporary fiction, I find more mistakes in it than not. At least in science fiction, I don't know enough to be confused. So, you know, when somebody tells me, oh, in 2300, there won't be heads up this place. Well, I don't care. It reads good to me. So I'm fine with that. But I can read something that's based in the here and now and then say, well, that's not how the military works. You know, the officers don't re-enlist. So please don't write that into your story. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, you know, often the future doesn't matter because it's off in the future. And so it sinks in better. And it's more relatable. That's another great benefit is that, you know, science fiction removes all the roadblocks that we would put up to anything that took place in modern times. You know, we would sit here and argue, well, that's not how the army would work. That's not how the chain of command would work. That's not how, you know, that weapon system would be employed. But you take all that away, then you can really focus in on the message of the story and the power in that. And so, you know, talking about powerful messages, what are some you know, talk about the different bins. You've talked about the themes of leadership in the book. What are some that kind of stand out to you as you've looked back over and held that final copy of To Boldly Go? One that comes to mind right off the bat is Max Brooks's chapter. And Max, you know, his chapter was very short, fairly seemed direct and to the point. Real quick, Steve. So for those that aren't familiar, you've probably seen World War Z. That's a book that just shares the same title as Max Brooks's book. Completely different book than the movie, so I encourage you to read that. But Max Brooks is a phenomenal author that's written a lot of great books, which is awesome that you were able to get him in on this anthology. Yeah, and I'll probably owe him dinner for a year when all this is done. But to get to your point, so Max's chapter is about uh, it's Romulans and Remans, and it deals with the aftermath of the Romulan War and the returning Remans. And the Remans were used as colonial troops during that war. And they returned and they wanted more rights and they wanted recognition and they wanted respect from the Romulans. And the funny thing is, you read this chapter and if you weren't paying attention, you'd miss it. It's a metaphor. It's an absolute metaphor for the Tuskegee Airmen and their experience in World War II. But it teases that out in such a subtle way, you would almost miss it. But the messaging is so deep and so powerful. And Max did it in, I think, less than 2,000 words. It just kind of slides out there. And there's a few chapters like that. There's Kira Olson wrote of, of X-Wings and Y-Wings. And it deals with the issue of gender. 
and uses Star Wars as the backdrop for that. There was another chapter, The Admiral and the Flyboy, and it deals with Admiral Holdo and Poe Dameron from the last three Star Wars movies. And how would a senior leader deal with the issues that Poe raised in terms of basically trying to stage a coup? And then that whole relationship between the senior leader and the hero pilot, who maybe isn't such a hero after all. These are issues that, you know, that they're almost lost sometimes in the viewing of a film. But take the time to write about it and bring out these issues and put them into a context that everybody recognizes. And all of a sudden, you can have these great debates. And we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago that it degenerated into a debate over whether Han Solo was a, was a good senior leader, whether he was a great general. It turned into a full-blown argument during the podcast. And somebody said, well, what do you have to say? And I said, I don't have to say anything. I'm just going to sit here and listen to this debate because this is what will happen with readers of the book. You're going to find yourself seeing something and then you're going to look over at your buddy and say, Hey, you know, I'm not so sure about this. Did you look at what uh, General Ryan wrote about grand strategy? And it's going to turn into a discussion on grand strategy instead of, you know, a discussion of the old man's war. And that's what you want to get out of this. But then the science fiction nerds can sit and talk about just the science fiction piece of that. But it has said that broad appeal kicks in again and you tease out some very significant issues worthy of discussion. I really appreciate, Steve, that you talk about, you know, a lot of us will read books and we won't, you know, we won't see it through a certain lens. But it's like almost now that if you read To Boldly Go, you can't just read science fiction for the nerd enjoyment of it anymore. Like you're going to start diving deeper and see more, you know, professional uh, nuggets in there that, that you can take back and use, you know, in a practical setting, whether it's, again, at the tactical, operational or strategic level. Love it. Absolutely. Another point I'd like to talk about with both of you, going back to the broader theme of science fiction, is how science fiction is able to smuggle ideas into our brains. I once read a, a quote by C.S. Lewis. He was passing around uh, you know, copies of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe among his, his friends that include uh, J.R. Tolkien. And uh, they gave it back to him with, with edits and feedback, and they were like, this book is great. And nobody said anything about the religious overtones of the book. So C.S. Lewis, he wrote in a letter, he said, any amount of theology can now be smuggled into people's minds under the cover of romance without their even knowing it. And so it's this idea that, you know, reading science fiction, we can start thinking through ideas that we may not have even thought about before, because again, we're, we're allowing ourselves to get absorbed into this world. I think that's a very important role, and I think that uh, science fiction authors are very aware of their responsibility with these kind of things. They're not just storytellers. The vast majority of authors also appreciate that they're trying to unpack ideas for people and to kind of slip in those ideas in, into discourse that might not be possible in other ways. You know, I go back to Joe Haldeman's Forever War, you know, a, a really powerful theme was about going to war, making the right decisions, going to into the right wars, uh, getting out of them the right way. And he's written a couple of essays just on how he thought about war and how he got themes into his stories about, you know, what was a good war, what wasn't a good war, you know, and it's not just relevant to Vietnam era, you know, it's also very relevant to our contemporary era. 
So I think those kind of ideas, you know, not just to do with war, societal problems, whether it's uh, climate change, whether there's broader issues about inequity in incomes and these kind of issues, you know, science fiction is very good at exploring these things and making people think about them, not not the tech and not the sci-fi, but think about the key issues that are contained in these stories. And, you know, it's a great responsibility that science fiction authors have, but I think it's one they understand well. It's one they've understood for a very long time, and it's one that our authors in this book and a lot of other military veterans who are writing, you know, people like Michael Mame, uh, Kira Olson, Shane Grease and others also take very seriously in their writing. I recently read The Warehouse by Rob Hart. I don't know if either of you have ever read that one. But again, science fiction, dystopian, but it looks at what happens when a, a company that provides very cheap products to people who can order them, can be there within two days. They start buying up grocery stores and they start gaining a lot of control. And this, this is set in the future. But at one point, there's this theory that they start pulling books like The Handmaid's Tale and uh, Fahrenheit 451 off the shelf. And then as they dig into it a little bit more, they realize that it wasn't the company doing it to keep people from thinking these ideas. It was the algorithms. And it was people quit reading these books. And so they were, they were no longer available for people to read anymore. But again, you, you read this science fiction story, and it starts making you think about the choices that we're making today that could potentially lead us down that road. Um, shifting gears a little bit, you know, you talked about diversity, you talked about a lot of the, the women authors, but another aspect of this book is it's not just American or, or Australian writers. I mean, you've, you've taken, you know, f- from across the board, correct? Oh, absolutely. We have, I would think between the Americans and the Australians, we've, that, that's probably the preponderance of writers here. And, Mick obviously brought a team in that was that was really good, but we also have British authors, Canadian authors, and I, I think at one point we even had one from Taiwan who fell out eventually. But we made sure we had very wide representation across the globe, and there was some intent to that too because I think if you just stick to say American writers, you're just going to get that perspective. And so the the more you can open that aperture, the more likely you are to get better perspectives, different perspectives, varying experiences, and unique voices. And I think all that comes together. It makes the product more appealing, more interesting. And I'll be honest, I I approached this from the get-go with a, hey, how do I market this? And, And the broader the appeal the better. And and you get a broader appeal by including more voices and, and wider perspectives. You know, it's the broader you can make that, the better it's going to get. And so somebody in, in Australia can find interest in this book. Somebody from England, hey, there's British authors, I'm going to read this, you know, wherever you're from. It, it's got something for everybody. But I think also in the end, it also makes for a much better product. I love reading these, uh, you know, you talked about the other books that it um, come out, Strategy Strikes Back, Winning Westeros. They're collections of a bunch of different authors. And I love, again, how you guys bend this one in different different themes. So all the essays really flow in the book. But, you know, if, if there's one essay that, you know, I'm not a huge fan of, I can skip to the next one and get a lot out of it. And you also brought up the power of reading people who aren't from our own culture, our own country. And it makes me think of another science fiction book I read. And as I'm talking to Steve and General Ryan, I said up front, I wasn't a science fiction fan, but I keep rattling off science fiction books. So 
maybe I need to like do some uh, introspective uh, reflection after this interview. But the three body problem, that book, you know, it's it was written by a Chinese author, and it's about an alien invasion. But the aliens invaded in a way that I don't think an American author would have written. They they found people who would go to their cause through a video game and made sure they had an entire insurgency built in before they ever started the invasion. So it was almost like they had already started at a tactical advantage before they fired the first shot of the uh, war. So I really appreciate the fact that, again, your your book pulls in from all these various perspectives because it's something that we can we can gain something out of. Diversity of voices brings diversity of perspectives and also diversity of topics that you can include in the book. I mean, I was talking to a French futurist a couple of weeks ago and he was saying there's something like a thousand sci-fi stories published a day in China at the moment. And not all of them are great, but there's this density of uh, science fiction literature over the last 20 years that it's impossible not to trip over some of the most profound and important societal issues that we face at the moment. Yeah, I just want to echo what Mick said too, because that whole diversity of perspective thing, it brings in things that I wouldn't normally read or I wouldn't maybe be exposed to. It just enriches the entire literary experience. That's what we aimed for. And it gives you a better appreciation for the value of increasing that level of diversity. I remember a conversation I had with Major General Ryan User. I think it was probably like three, four years ago, but but we were talking about, you know, adversaries and everybody thinking the same way. And I think you said that our competitive advantage is going to be our diversity of thought that we bring into it. How as uh, Western militaries, we kind of bring in all sorts of different perspectives. Like that's going to be our competitive advantage in the next war. I think so. I mean, technology is more of a level playing field than it's ever been, I think, in some respects. doesn't mean it's totally level. There are certain competitive advantages that countries like the United States still possess. But a a liberal democracy, at least in theory, is able to explore any idea that it wishes to explore uh, and that there are no kind of boundaries in the, the ideas that it might like to look at. Now, these are funneled in through things like committees and bureaucracies and stuff, which drive me a little crazy. But I think that truly is our competitive advantage in the 21st century is that we're free to explore and we allow our people to explore lots of different kinds of ideas about, you know, how to live their lives, how to work, uh, how to fight, how to maintain the peace. That really is for countries that can harness that a very profound advantage and in a way to underpin peace and prosperity in uh, liberal democratic societies. Well, before we end this interview, if you know listeners have made it this far and have never read science fiction before and have only read military history or whatever book was on their commander's reading list, what are two or three titles from each of you that you would throw out there for a young military leader to pick up? I'll give you three to start off with. The first one is Joe Haldeman's The Forever War, fabulous book about a war that takes over, you know, about 900 years, but written by a US Army veteran. The second one is John Scalzi's Old Old Man's War, not just really entertaining science fiction, but looks at some really important issues of what it means to be human. And then the third one would be Martha Wells' Murderbot series, very similar, you know, looks at technology, what's it 
ethical to do with technology and what's it mean to be human? I'd add, we already talked about Ghost Fleet, which I think is a really good contemporary read. You know, I think that's on a lot of reading lists now, and that's a great one to start with. We also mentioned The Martian. I love The Martian, if for no other reason than it just dives deeply into problem solving in such a way that I think we can all relate to. And I also want to echo what Mick said, but with a different book, and it would be The Bicentennial Man, which was an old Asimov book that really deals well with what it means to be a human and how we accept or we don't accept people along the way. Forget the Robin Williams movie. It was okay. The book was just phenomenal. And, you know, I think in a lot of ways, that's what we're trying to figure out. What does it it mean to be a human? Not just in the future, but what does it mean in our time? And I think the window to understand that is in our time, but we see it through the future. Gentlemen, I, I really appreciate those books that you recommended. There's a couple that I definitely haven't read that I'm going to need to pick up. Your book, To Boldly Go, Leadership, Strategy, and Conflict in the 21st Century and Beyond, came out September 30th and uh, is available anywhere you can buy books. But for both of you, I just want to say thank you very much, um, not just for making time to do this interview, but just for the support you've both given me and given the blog uh, from The Green Notebook over the last eight years. Like Both of you, I, I owe a huge debt of gratitude. So I'm just glad to be able to talk with both of you on this podcast and continue to learn from you, even though, Steve, you're out of uniform now and, and General Ryan, you're, you're a few months away. So thank you very much. It's great to talk to you, Joe, as always. And remember, pay it forward, mate. I would echo exactly what Mick said. I could say the reason why we support you and we continue to support you is because of all the good that you've done and all the knowledge that you've brought to others. You have continued to pay it forward. And that unselfishness is just what drives us to support people like you. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday Reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. Shoot me down soon